Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Ryan! plays on and misses. Got to the big guy, Dak. Dak, 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 Dak. Dak nailed three. Oh, who else? McDonald. Tibble. From inside the centre square. Boys kick the goal. Good time of day, everyone. This is Americans Watching the Footy. I'm Ethan Castle, coming to you from South San Francisco, California. And I'm Benjamin Castle, coming to you from, well, right next to Ethan, because this is his bedroom. Yes, Benjamin's back home. It was a very tumultuous week for me. I thought I was going to be back in Berkeley in my apartment there, but my roommate remained COVID positive, so I ended up having to stay in Oakland. So on my last day of undergraduate education at Cal, it was the first time I took the bus to campus and had my two commencement ceremonies and came back here. And now we're recording once again from the comfort of our home. Now you may be the one who graduated college, but I learned something new this week. I learned that calling someone a septic tank or seppo is not an insult and more just a term that Australians use for Americans. Because the first time someone called us that, I thought they were insulting us. Once it happened a second time, I figured out, wait a minute, maybe this isn't an insult. Maybe this is something else. And I looked at it, and sure enough, it's just a term for Americans. So it's been really nice to see through people who have made that reference that there are more and more Australians listening to this show and that we're getting generally favorable reviews. We really appreciate any and all reviews, whether they're positive or negative. Feedback is always appreciated. I remember a couple rounds in, there was one fan who chimed in and said we were too harsh on St. Kilda, and he was right. I actually knew what Seppo was a while before, maybe from some r slash AFL interactions or something else. I think that their kind of rhyming slang is similar to some of the stuff with the Cockney slang in England. For example, Arthur Negus has held Bristol's. Uh, that's not a result. That's a bit of gossip. Doesn't really go along the same lines, but you keep telling yourself that. Anyway, round nine. Once again, no down-to-the-wire game for the second week in a row, but good entertainment. A lot of games that really had major swings somewhere around the middle portion of them, somewhere between the second and third quarters. A lot of good drama, and I think we're starting to once again really get a sense of where teams are. I don't think there are more than a couple teams that are all that predictable week in and week out, but I think we've been able to learn at least where each team's floor and ceiling is now that we're more than a third of the way through the season. However, one game that certainly did not have that sort of mid-game swing was the opener between Collingwood and the Western Bulldogs. I believe this is the Bulldogs' fifth time playing a round opener. And they put up good fights in a number of those, and they more than put up a good fight in this one, defeating Collingwood by 48 points. It was Collingwood 7-9-51, defeated by the Bulldogs 14-15-99. It was a first quarter explosion, despite the concerns we had in the ruck. 
for the Bulldogs. Stefan Martin was replaced by Jordan Sweet, and Tim English remained out with the flu, but didn't end up being that big of a deal because Collingwood, as we know, have been lacking in the ruck themselves, and that may spur some changes going into the Sir Doug Nichols round. This was arguably Adam Trelore's finest game in a Bulldogs uniform, and it's only fitting that he did so against Collingwood. He was nothing short of phenomenal, finishing with three goals in the behind, 35 disposals, eight clearances, and 537 meters gained. He was deservedly rewarded with the Bob Rose Charlie Sutton medal. Hard to keep track of all the different medals with how many different teams have rivalries, but but definitely well-deserved. Also very active game in the midfield for Jack McRae. 37 disposals and 8 marks. When those two are that prominent playing the way they should, it tends to be very good for the Bulldogs. It's far too easy for them to just fall into the trap of them going through Marcus Bonapelli and Bailey Smith. But with Bonapelli adjusting more and more toward full forward, I think that opens up more opportunities for other members of the Bulldogs midfield, and that seems to be the best thing for them. As for Bailey Smith... He was really dominant early before kind of taking a step back. He still finished with really impressive numbers, 41 disposals, 13 score involvements, 9 inside 50s, and 684 meters gained. Once again, his pure strength was on display. It was also a really nice night for one of my favorite players, one of the funniest guys in the AFL, Tom Liberatore. My God, he's greasy. 31 disposals in a game high, 8 tackles. As Benjamin said, the first quarter was really where the Bulldogs did the most of their damage, going up by 32, and that was with Collingwood kind of settling in after a really lousy start, actually playing the last few minutes of the quarter decently well. Just weren't able to make it count on the scoreboard. Meanwhile, it was really important that Marcus Bonapelli started off hot. You know who didn't start hot was Ollie Henry, who missed a couple of pretty easy chances. Easy to forget with how prominent he was in the first couple rounds. He's just 19. He's still pretty raw at the AFL level. And even with the flashes of brilliance that he'll have, there are going to be some likely substantial growing pains. Thankfully, Collingwood are in a position where he'll likely have time to be able to work it out. They're in the position where, yeah, they might be a finals team this year, but they're still very much evolving into their new identity under Craig McRae. And that's going to probably take another season or two before we see it in full, especially as their list continues to get younger and younger. Guys like Scott Pendlebury aren't going to be sticking around forever. Pendlebury and Jack Ginevan, both unavailable for this game. They were both out sick, not COVID. And that also speaks to my point where you're seeing much more of this raw or newer Collingwood without Pendlebury in. Ginevan is a big part of it, but it's also important to see where else they have success. And Jack Crisp is going to be vital to that over these next few years. Crisp with another two goals, 24 disposals, and 561 meters gained. Tends to be more dominant in the clearances than he was, but that's a spot where the Bulldogs really took advantage. They were plus 16 on clearances, 43 to 27 the Bulldogs, and 15 to 7 for the center. They really exposed Aiden Begg, and clearly, knowing that they were going to be without Tim English and knowing how much his absence has hurt, they really prepared some different strategies to get those center clearances, knowing they might not necessarily fare as well in terms of hitouts. I mentioned a couple times before that Begg probably has some physical growth ahead of him if he's going to transition into a bona fide AFL ruck. He does good things with the ball in hand on the ground, but if he doesn't grow quickly, he may be more suited in some sort of forward half role because it seems like he's got a decently long and accurate kick, even if it hasn't shown up on the scoreboard quite yet. 
Collingwood did play a better second quarter. Both teams left some points out there. They went into half down 34 and got the first goal of the third after a really, really bad arms out 50 call against Buku Kamis. Isaac Quainer got the goal out of that. But the Bulldogs extended the lead back to 40 and there wasn't really much else going on from there. Lead did get down to 27 at one point, but really didn't make a difference. This was the Bulldogs once again showing that with their backs against the wall, they can bring it. They've been maddeningly inconsistent this year, but when they've been in an absolute must-win spot, they've done a nice job with it. And this was another one of those games. And that was the case despite them not kicking ridiculously accurately. One more behind than a goal. Aaron Naughton with a lot of opportunities, but only managed three goals too. Even with Bonapelli back, with Cody Waitman out at least another week and maybe longer recovering from his broken collarbone, Naughton is going to need to find greater consistency, that is, if he's in. It's been reported in the aftermath of the game that he has some knee concerns. Nonetheless, a really good balanced showing from the Bulldogs. Caleb Daniel did a nice job in the back. He finished with eight intercepts, 10 marks, 34 disposals, but only eight of those were contested possessions. Kind of demonstrates that they were able to get the ball out of their own 50 with minimal interference. Bailey Dale, 29 disposals, a game-high 11 marks and 639 meters gained. He was quite good. And I thought this was one of Josh Dunkley's best games. 24 disposals and 9 marks, and they were almost all high-impact plays. He was on significant parts of the ground, in key sequences. A lot of play was running through him. He was able to flip momentum back in the other direction when needed. This was one of his best performances, and even if the numbers don't jump off the page, he was excellent. Another one of those players that we don't mention nearly enough from the Bulldogs, but but a player through whom they work. Just about as much as anyone, I'd say, other than Jack McRae and Bailey Smith. Also want to circle back to the forwards. We mentioned Buku getting that ridiculous arms out 50, and we could keep talking about those. But he ended up with three goals himself, happy that he's taking advantage of the opportunity. The one frustrating thing about this game from the Bulldogs makes you wonder, where's this been from Adam Trelor? Because he's been quiet. He hasn't been such a high-impact player. And yet, clearly, that inherent ability is there. We've seen it in flashes. I'd like to see it more consistently out of him. As for Collingwood, their problem in both big Bulldogs runs, especially in the first quarter, but also in the third, they were letting guys leak out back, get open, and have free runs at the goal. And that just can't happen. I know they're still getting a new system under their belts, but that's something that needs to be controlled. I thought this was one of Collingwood's lesser performances. They've had a couple games that they've lost where I thought they've actually played pretty well. I did not think that was the case in this game. They did have a couple decent performances individually. You already mentioned Jack Crisp. Also like to add that Brayton Maynard had 23 disposals in a game high nine intercepts, but he did get beat a few times by Bulldogs forwards. And they scored off just 37% of their inside 50s. There were a lot of sequences in this game where the teams kind of played each other evenly. But the problem is the stretches in which the Bulldogs were better were so lopsided that Collingwood really never had a chance. As we transition into the late Friday slash Saturday games in the U.S., just all of Saturday in Australia, I just want to say that I am not a fan of the way things have been formatted these past few rounds. I get that it's tough to cram all the games into a few days, but the way things overlap and having a couple games competing directly against each other, I don't think is really good for anyone. 
isn't good for ratings, isn't good for people like us who want to follow every single game. Not good for footy. What is good for footy is how Richmond have performed these past couple rounds with some players returning to their fold. Dustin Martin returning a couple rounds ago. Dion Prestia and Nick Flossstone returning from illness for this clash against Hawthorne, which they won damn solidly, even though the final score looks a bit more favorable toward the Hawks. It was Hawthorne 14-10-94, defeated by Richmond 17-15-117. I was watching the worst offense in all of baseball while this game was going on. That being the Oakland Athletics, of course. And that's not subjectively the worst. They are objectively right now the worst offense in baseball by just about every measure. But anyway, wasn't really following this game live until it was out of reach. Hawthorne actually took a 25-point lead early in the second quarter, but gave that all away by halftime. Tigers went into the half, taking the lead after back-to-back goals by Shea Bolton and Ivan Soldo. Soldo actually being noticeable for the second round in a row. Seems like he may have turned a corner. Richmond led throughout the second half and extended the lead to as much as 35. As you mentioned, Soldo had a big game finishing with 25 hitouts, three clearances, and two goals, even though he was only on the ground for 47% of the game. I think the combination of him and Nan Curvis works really well in that both are also pretty gifted as forwards, especially Nan Curvis, who kicked, spoiler alert, what should be the goal of the week. He was basically getting spun around by Max Lynch and scored anyway. Toby finished with 35 hitouts, eight total clearances, which was tied with Dion Prestia for the game high, 20 disposals, and that excellent goal. With Nan Curvis and Soldo firing on all cylinders, Richmond absolutely dominated the center circle. Hitouts were 60 to 22, and center clearances were 23 to 9. Trent Caution was a big part of that. He had five center clearances. Jay Bolton and James Short were next with four each, but a whole lot of players got involved there. You just talked about Presti. I mentioned earlier that he was one of the two that was a big return from illness. Dion Presti with a game high 28 disposals and 11 scored moments to go along with that joint high eight clearances and 510 meters. Nick Flostone with 20 disposals, 8 marks, 5 intercepts, 525 meters gained. You combine those two with Dusty's return and his three goals, and you start to get why Richmond are looking more and more like the Tigers we know these past couple rounds. Playing further forward again, Dusty finished with three goals, plus 20 disposals and 409 meters gained. I think it's been fun having him further forward because you really get to watch and appreciate him a lot more. Speaking of forwards, how about Coleman leader Tom Lynch, who kicked another four, part of his 16 disposal, six mark performance. He also had a couple of tackles, a couple of goal assists. He had eight score involvements in all. And he did that with less direct involvement from Morris Rioli. So he's plenty capable of getting those chances himself, as we've been accustomed to see. He has four goals clear right now in the Coleman medal race over Tom Hawkins and Charlie Kernow. We'll, we'll talk about those players undoubtedly in a little bit. But I was thinking about, with Dusty, why he's been able to play more full forward. Maybe it's partially because of just a style adjustment with him coming back, but I think a lot of it has to do with the prominence of Jaden Short in the midfield. He didn't have a sparkling game, but I think his movement ability has allowed a lot more to open up for Dusty in terms of forward opportunities. And a couple good games for Trent Caution coming off his rest have also made that job a lot easier. Noel Balta going down may end up causing some shifts and some game plans. That'll be a conversation point 
for the Dreamtime match next round for sure. Once again, we have to ask, did Hawthorne run out of steam too early? Or in this case, were they just outclassed by a superior team? I'm not sure because this was a different sort of running out of steam than they had before. They caught a second wind and finished strongly, but got completely outclassed in the latter parts of the second quarter. I think they do need to manage their runs a bit better. And that's probably the biggest issue for Sam Mitchell because they have a lot of good things going for them. They did well creating opportunities without Chankwok Jaff for the fourth week in a row. Looks like he may be back in line to return next time. It was another productive game for Jai Newcomb among a couple others. Jarman Impey with 25 disposals and 8 marks. Sicily with 23 kicks out of his 24 disposals. He had 9 marks and 680 meters. So they can clearly create a lot of opportunities but they need to manage their energy a bit more and they need to figure out how to work better when they're moving more slowly. A real downer for Richmond is Marlon Pickett topping a one-game suspension for his bump on Dylan Moore. It sucks for football fans altogether because he's so fun to watch and he's done so well in halfback this year. I've heaped a lot of praise on him and Daniel Rioli in the early parts of the season and their form has largely continued. Also, it means he won't be playing in the Dreamtime game, for which he designed Richmond's jersey. Hopefully, they'll give that jersey another game. A lot of teams do. Definitely an opportunity for that. Round 11 with Richmond playing the Martin Brook game at Sydney. A lot of tradition and indigenous pride going into that game every year. The other early Saturday game was played in Tasmania, North Melbourne hosting Port Adelaide. I'd say this one largely went as expected, with the power winning by 69. Hey, nice. North Melbourne, 6-10-46, defeated by Port Adelaide, 17-13-115. Took a bit for this game to really open up, even with Port Adelaide outscoring North Melbourne 35-9 in the first quarter. North managed to stick around for, I'd say, a little too long. But like another game that we saw later in the round, the fourth quarter was where Port got the much-needed percentage that you should be getting against these two sides. I got some really interesting perspective out of this one from listening to what the broadcasters were saying about North, especially some of Nick Del Santos' commentary. I believe it was him who had mentioned that North actually played pretty well around the ball, but they were so bad elsewhere that as long as Port Adelaide were able to free it up, they would find an open man. Without Ben Mackay, there were a lot of mismatches to be exploited. Also remember they were without Aaron Hall, Jason Horn Francis, and Jai Simpkin was laid out with a hamstring injury. Ah, well, if it wasn't the simp. North actually played a pretty decent second quarter, but they struggled in some of the slower sequences. So if you're struggling in slower sequences and when the ball is moving around, if you're not defending well away from the ball, that's... That's a bad combo, and that's why you're losing a bunch. A lot of that can also be explained by a few simple stats. North Melbourne, minus 18 in inside 50s. It was 61 to 43 for Port, and their inside 50 efficiency was deplorable. 37.2, 37.2 compared to Port's 57.4. I know a lot of teams hover around the mid to high 40s, but you can't be down in 30s at all. What really surprised me is that Port won the hitouts. It was 39 to 33 in their favor. That makes you wonder, first off, how much of a downgrade is it from Tristan Jerry to Callum Coleman Jones? There is definitely a downgrade, and that's no knock on Coleman Jones. It's just that Jerry's really good. I think more than anything, it's that everyone knows it's one of North's strengths, and because they don't have a lot of other strengths, 
you can really spend a lot of time game planning for it, preparing for it, and really training your rucks to be in positions to get those bounces their way. Coleman Jones only had six of those 33 hitouts with Goldstein getting the other 27. Remember, Goldstein is now the second-ranked ruck, so you're replacing the first with the third here, so that is a pretty substantial loss. Having said that, excellent work from Sam Hayes with 33 headouts to match the entire North output along with four clearances himself. Ollie Wines was a monster in stoppage and center play alike with a game-high nine clearances. Wines was a pretty remarkable all-around stat line. 32 disposals, 575 meters gained, 12 score involvements, a pair of goals and three behinds. The other guy who really stood out to me was Todd Marshall, who they said is the second most accurate kick in the competition. I guess, assuming there's a minimum number of kicks that have to be executed for you to qualify, I would assume that that would put Darcy Ford as number one if he's qualified. Marshall finished with another three goals in the behind, and he's really changed the complexion of this Port Adelaide forward line. The better he's played, and Mitch Georgiatis with another three goals despite taking a couple of decent hits. Jeremy Finlayson, another really strong outing as well. Ever since he went down to the Sandful, he's been a lot better. He had just two goals this time, but he was very impactful. Really changes how they structure their play and, more importantly, how defenses have to match up with them. And perhaps even more importantly, makes the risk job very, very difficult considering number 22 looms large in their potential selection as early as next round. That said, the Sandful was off this week because it was a Sandful versus Waffle game that was played instead. So there's speculation he might be back in the Sandful this coming week. We'll talk about that more, obviously, in the preview show. Because they got a pretty big one coming up against the Cats. My only concern out of this game from Port Adelaide was that they took some pretty solid hits this week. There was a knee-on-knee collision that Marshall dealt with. Totally inadvertent. He ended up scoring moments later anyway. So clearly it didn't bother him much, at least at the time. Wines was banged up from a marking contest with Jack Mahoney and Atu Bosanabulagi. So we'll see if those turn into any lingering injuries. Positives for North Melbourne hard to come by, but Luke Davies Uniac had 25 disposals, 7 clearances, 6 tackles, and 5 marks. He seems like he's ready within the next year or two, perhaps ahead of Horn Francis, to be a premier midfielder in the competition. A couple pretty noticeable errors, but you'll have to think he'll learn how to clean those up. Cam Zerhar with three goals and four behinds. Josh Walker, 11 intercepts. Lockie Young, 10 intercepts. But I think those intercept numbers were inflated because they were pressured so much. They were in their own 50 so much trying to defend that just inevitably with more chances, they were going to get more intercepts. Very early on, I thought that Young and Walker were both struggling, especially Young in a stretch where he and Aiden Corr both kind of lost their man to let Mitch Georgiatis get the first goal of the game. It's worth noting, again, North were missing multiple significant pieces for this game, though Taron Thomas looks totally up to speed. Numbers didn't jump off the page, but he looked better. And he's one of the more fun, engaging players to watch, so it makes them more watchable. However... Not sure how watchable it's going to be for them next round when they've got an even greater task ahead of them in in NARM. And don't forget, that game sits by itself in the middle of the Saturday schedule. I'm trying to find things to say about North other than that they're bad. And that point that Nick Dal Santo brought up, why are they so bad off the ball, got me thinking. 
there's got to be one of three reasons that they're so bad off the ball. One is that the players might not be very good. Another is that the coaching might not be very good. The other that I think is the most likely is that because the players aren't very good, especially the team that they had out there this past week, that coaching has had to emphasize some of the basics that most teams, coaches wouldn't have to worry about. And that just takes away time where they'd be focusing on more sophisticated things like positioning off the ball. This could be interpreted as a knock against David Noble and his staff in one or two of those scenarios. But I think it's really hard to judge with the outs that they had. And this is also his second year. And it's looking like more and more the past few years, it's the third year for a lot of coaches that has been make or break. That said, I would like to see a couple more games for them where they look competitive. You know, that game against the Swans, I think, was a great blueprint for what a good performance looks like from them. I think that might be above a good performance. I thought that was a borderline great game from their standpoint. But if they can play some games where they're in it for a while, where the final margin doesn't end up so ridiculous, it would be much appreciated just to keep some eyes on them. Make them look like a team that at least some games may not beat good teams, but could put a scare into them because they look pretty far from that right now. Yeah, not really looking forward to that middle slot game on Saturday next round. However, this round's middle Saturday game did not disappoint. It was the only game this round between two teams in the eight, and it stays that way after this round as well. It was very much a Geelong first half and very much a St. Kilda second half. The Saints coming home well like we know they've been able to do all this season. St. Kilda 13-12-90, defeating Geelong 11-14-80. My biggest takeaway from this one is that Geelong let a lot of opportunities slip away early on, and it was another case where they weren't kicking accurately, another case where they didn't make a lot of their entries count in the first half as well. While those struggles were certainly something I noticed, I thought it was much more prominent in other games. I thought the biggest thing was that St. Kilda just played a great third quarter, And I thought this was one of the worst coached games from Geelong so far this year. Last year, I was really critical of Geelong's coaching staff. I've liked most of what they've done this year, but I thought this game, they underutilized Brad Close. They had him playing too far forward for him to really run around much. He didn't have many touches. And I thought they really underutilized Mark O'Connor, who could have been used either on Max King or Patty Ryder. And instead, he was just kind of off to the side. I think you kind of called the situation with close after last round. And we were talking about where O'Connor belonged in the mix of things. If he belonged on, if he belonged on Higgins or Steele, I don't get why the answer this time was no one, because he's one of the premier taggers in the competition. And unlike a player like Matt Rowell, who gets thrust into that role unnecessarily, O'Connor is like Lockie Ash, where tacky is where he works best. And with Tom Stewart being such a good defender, it's not like you need to do much else with him. One interesting note I took from this game was that Tom Stewart's performance was basically inverse of how the rest of the team was performing. He didn't do a lot early on. Team was fine. Then in the second half, when the team struggled, Stewart was really the only thing keeping them afloat. Now, some of that could be because he gets his intercepts when teams try to enter the forward 50. But I just thought he asserted himself more in the second half when everyone else struggled. Let's start with the good news, though. Ryan Myers finally got his first goal of the year. He caught a mark right around the goal square off a nice kick from Tom Hawkins. Although I will say, whereas electricity and water take the path of least resistance, 
he made his shot about as difficult as possible. Could mean a lack of confidence, but whatever. I'm just glad he got one, though he only finished the game with 11 touches. There was so much that should have put the Cats in control of this game. They went into half up 16, could have been up more. Jack Higgins was subbed out with a concussion. Jack Steele injured his right shoulder. Turns out he's going to be out for upwards of two months. St. Kilda gets the first goal of the third very quickly. Daniel McKenzie up ahead to Tim Memory. But then Brad Close finally gets involved, setting up Zach Tui on a terrific end-to-end sequence. And then Tom Hawkins takes a mark on Dougal Howard, knocks in the shot from 48, the lead's back up to 21. Everything looks like it's going well, and then St. Kilda went on a 39-2 run to close the quarter. Geelong did cut the lead to three with about 15 minutes left when Hawkins scored again off of a setup from Quinton Narkel, but Reese Stanley then completely left Patty Ryder open, which made no sense. The Saints got going in transition again for another Ryder goal, and when Jeremy Cameron finally got involved, it was too little too late, and while the Saints couldn't get the goal that really put the game out of reach because of misses from Mason Wood and Jack Billings, Cameron couldn't put one through with about a minute left, and that sealed it. This was one of the times so far this year where the Cats looked old. They were the slower team, St. Kilda was outrunning them and getting openings around the ground, usually able to create a numbers advantage. They were largely outclassed in the midfield. They didn't get the ball to Brad close enough, and for some reason were trying to take a bunch of contested pack marks against a team that's so big and so physical Really, the last team you'd want to do that against. And at this point, I'm just coming to the conclusion that this Geelong team has a high floor but a low ceiling, and they're going to just sit between 5th and 8th on the ladder. Between having already played a lot of the tougher teams and getting to play both North Melbourne and West Coast twice, they should have no issue making the 8th, probably finish closer to the top 4 than away from it. But considering that their only really impressive win was at home... I guess you got the Collingwood win as impressive as well, but it was impressive because they looked so bad for most of the game before playing a great fourth quarter. This just looks like a good but not great team. And if your attitude is flag or bust, you're going to be disappointed. But if you're looking at this from the perspective, well, they've been good for a long time, so they haven't been able to stock up on a lot of great draft picks, so it's understandable. I mean, it's better than completely falling off the face of the earth. And they're a compelling team to watch week in and week out. I think for a lot of teams, how they stack up against the Cats will be a good measure of how good they are. But it's frustrating to think that 2020 was really the best chance for this team to win another flag. I'm starting to think that Chris Scott tends to try to confront teams with their own strategies. And some teams are better at that than others. We found that Hawthorne at times are lacking in that regard, but they manage to corral themselves when it matters. But if you throw St. Kilda's strategy right back at them, they have the weapons to outdo you. And that was exactly what happened here. Narrow victories in a lot of stats tell a decent amount of the story, especially with how the pendulum shifted between the first and second halves. Patty Ryder and Rowan Marshall continued their very strong tandem work, whereas I wasn't really impressed with either of Mark Blitzovs or Reese Stanley in their stoppage work. Blitzovs did have a decent game elsewhere, but nonetheless... They needed to match up with Ryder and Marshall. That's one of the Saints' biggest strengths. The guy that really caught me off guard for St. Kilda was Zach Jones, who was quiet in the first half and really turned it on in the third quarter, kept that going into the fourth. And Mason Wood also played pretty darn well as the game went on. 
This is just Jones' second game back this year. Looks like he's getting more up to speed, and we're starting to remember how important he was for them a couple years ago. Also just want to note that in addition to his ruck work, Patty Ryder had three goals. Definitely embracing that key forward part of his ability, and it's just so huge that they have a competent second ruck in Marshall that allows them to kind of trade off those roles. If you go into halftime as Geelong, you're thinking, all right, we played a decent, not amazing first half. We know they're a really good third quarter team, but if you rattle off a list of all the guys that you thought you had to watch for, Zach Jones probably wouldn't have been one of them. So I get why that was difficult to prepare for. I still would have liked to see them try to do something to stop the hot hand more, where even if you're not going to have Mark O'Connor tag just one guy, just kind of throw him around to whoever's the hot hand, whether that be Ryder, whether that be, for a few moments, Zach Jones, whether it be one of the million guys named Jack. Even though two of them went down injured. Final stats from this one worth noting, Brad Crouch was pretty quality. Game high, 36 disposals, 7 tackles, 6 intercepts, and 10 score involvements. Jack Sinclair, 31 disposals, 9 marks, and 650 meters gained. Jay Gresham, 30 disposals, 8 clearances, and 6 tackles. Jack Billings, 1 goal, 1 behind, 22 disposals, 8 marks. Josh Battle, one of the more impressive defenders for the Saints with 20 disposals and 8 marks. The aforementioned Rowan Marshall, a goal, 17 hitouts, and 7 tackles. And 9 intercepts for Callum Wilkie, who definitely got better as the game went on. Second or third week in a row where we've both been impressed by Callum Wilkie. We were critical of St. Kilda's defense early on, and for a while we thought that the only way that they'd be able to win is if they completely outpace other teams on the forward end. As the season's gone on, their back lines have become stronger and stronger, and so they're able to afford having not ridiculous games from everyone on ground. Heck, Max King only had 2-1 from nine touches, and it didn't matter. Meanwhile, Geelong had a couple top performers that you would completely expect. Tom Hawkins had four goals, one to stay close in the Coleman count. Tom Stewart with 27 disposals and nine marks. Zach Tui, 26 disposals, 559 meters gained, and a pair of goals. In names that you may not expect as much, Sam DeConing with 11 intercepts, though he was quite inconsistent. You mentioned Brad Close. He was limited to just 10 disposals. Meanwhile, Mark Blitzoffs and Zach Guthrie made seven tackles apiece. Continue with your thread of Blitzoffs playing well out of those ruck contests. And also Zach Guthrie continuing to grow into the halfback position in which he truly belongs. Unfortunately, Mitch Nevitt did not have a great game. Was hoping he would build off of his strong performance with his injury sub debut. Did not quite do that. And Jeremy Cameron was, as I said before, all but invisible. In terms of the team stats that did go more solidly towards St. Kilda, I think those tell a decent part of the story. St. Kilda with 12 tackles inside 50 compared to DeLong's six, emblematic of the pressure that St. Kilda were able to keep on for a large portion of the contest, whereas without Tom Stewart's work, the Cats were probably going to be really out of this or just out of it a lot earlier. And at the very start, I mentioned that DeLong's inside 50 efficiency was bad. It was 431 Below average for them. Meanwhile, St. Kilda were operating well above average at 57.1. And one way or another, whether a team is above their average or below while leading, you have to at least keep up in that efficiency in order to stay close. And the Cats certainly did not. I realize Max King is going to become one of those forwards that opponents really don't like and opposing fans really don't like. 
He's pretty physical. He gets away with some contact, similar to Tom Hawkins, maybe not as egregious, but on that sort of same trajectory. My biggest big picture takeaway from this game wasn't so much about either of these teams. Consider what Melbourne did to St. Kilda and how good St. Kilda looked in this game and how good they've looked most of the year. What does that say about just how far ahead of everybody the Demons are? Remember, St. Kilda beat Fremantle, and the way Fremantle played this week, we'll talk about later, was um, bad. I think we'll be able to get a real indication of things in that regard in a couple rounds once Fremantle take on Melbourne themselves. Do you want to note one quick stat before we take our short ad break and then move on to the late slot? Between 2012 and 2021, they killed over 12, 104, and 1 when trailing at halftime. In 2022, they are 4 and 2. I think the way they've been able to make halftime adjustments every game is a really good reflection on Brett Ratton's coaching ability. I think it's time to stop questioning him. He knows what he's doing. And I think it's time to start questioning why other teams haven't been able to handle the Saints' third quarters. You ought to be able to see it coming. You should be able to see where they have had success the first half and be able to anticipate what the Saints are doing a little better. I'm not sure how much success that's going to lead to, but it's certainly something that more coaches should at least seem to be apt to trying. We are, you know, only Americans, and this is only our third year, but even with the skill that St. Kilda have, I feel like more teams should be able to anticipate it. One thing that you can anticipate is where to find us. You can find me on Twitter individually at Castle Media, K-A-S-S-E-L-M-E-D-I-A. You can find me on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. You can find us together at Americans Footy, and you can find my cat, Brian, who's sitting right next to me and licking my fingers right now, on Instagram at CatNamedGrian. The late Saturday slash early Saturday, if you're an American like us, slot started with an inaccurate kicking affair throughout at the SCG. Teams ended up combining to kick 20 goals, 32. And with all the chances that that created, that meant that there were a lot of really compelling parts of this game. However, it was a pretty clear domination, both on the scoreboard and just from a viewing standpoint, as Sydney outclassed Essendon. 14 goals, 21-105, to 6 goals, 11-47. Benjamin, what are your takeaways from this game? Well, my biggest takeaway is that Essendon's biggest problem might be their defense. Might be their defense. Might. It's not like we and pretty much anybody else who's been watching the Bombers have been saying this from maybe round three onward. Maybe you cut them a little bit of slack in those first couple rounds with potential growing pains of getting into the new season. But how had anyone not been able to see this the first eight rounds? It mostly strikes me as a sign that they haven't watched this team at all. This was the bounce back game that the Swans were looking for, playing for a third straight week at home, coming off back to back losses. They led 35-15 after a quarter, then really tore it open in the second, went into halftime up by 38, and it could have been a lot more, but they had only kicked 9-12. Brushed that lead out to 51 after three quarters. Ended up winning the game by 58. Essendon actually led this game 15-9 before the Swans got the final 26 points of the opening quarter. That run turned into six consecutive Swans goals before Archie Perkins finally got one back. But Buddy kicked one at ground level shortly after. 
He finished with a pair of goals and four behinds. He's been far less accurate the last couple weeks. He does now have 1,016 career goals, in case you were curious about the exact number. We still write down what number goal it is on our notes. We did that for the first couple rounds in his chase to 1,000, and for some reason we've kept it up ever since, though it's starting to get a little out of hand. Having said that, he's probably now going to kick four or five one of the next couple rounds. And like that goofy meme, we'll fucking do it again. <laughs> a lot of the regular contributors stepped up for Sydney after a couple of down weeks. Callum Mills, 29 disposals, 13 tackles and 7 marks. Forget the exact number, but his first half tackling numbers alone were sensational. Chad Warner, 32 disposals, 7 marks, 507 meters gained. Nick Blakey, once again, showing that we knew early on just how good he is. 26 disposals, 7 marks, he gained 504 meters. Luke Parker, a goal, 23 disposals, gained 538. Tom Papley, 2 goals, 3 behinds, 21 disposals, and 10 marks. A pretty convincing performance for a Swans team that had just looked off the last couple weeks. And it's funny because Sydney Essendon is such a good rivalry, usually makes for pretty tight games. This one was never that tight after the first 15 minutes. And that was despite Essendon getting a decent amount of time in their offensive 50. The inside 50s were only 60 to 49. Any double-digit gap is significant, but when both teams are getting that many chances, it's less so. However, Essendon were deplorably inefficient when they were inside 50, 36.7 compared to Sydney's 55%. But if you're talking ugly stats, by far the worst defender is the tackling. 56 to 30 for Sydney. And that was despite Essendon being plus two, 10 to eight in tackles inside 50. They need to be a lot more aggressive, a lot more willing to tackle in the middle of the field. They have the midfield ability to be able to do that, I believe, but they need to take the initiative. Maybe they were too afraid that a missed tackle was going to open something up with the shiftiness that some of the Swans players have. But with how well they operate through the middle, you have to take that chance. And frankly, even when there weren't missed tackles, things opened up for the Swans. So it really didn't accomplish what they might have been hoping to accomplish. And I think that's more on the players' decision-making on the fly than it is on coaching. A couple of stats for the Bombers worth noting. Zach Reed had 10 marks. Darcy Parrish was really talked about a lot after his Anzac Day performance where he had big possession numbers but not a lot of impact. That was the case again here with 31 disposals, most of them being pretty insignificant and not under pressure. Great for accumulating fantasy stats, but one of the few times that ranking points in fantasy stats have not correlated with being an effective player. Seems like a lot of the times when he has those quantitative stats more than qualitative ones. He's spending more time out of contest, more time in the back half. Some of that was necessitated by Sydney's ability, but he needs to be able to get more up the field because he definitely is able to have a solid impact when he does. He just wasn't here. Again, though, the big takeaway from this game is that the Swans are back. What it do, baby? Please don't be our Skip Bayless in here. We need people to actually not just blindly like the team that everybody else hates. Thankfully, you like the other striped team. Like with Richmond and how well they looked in their win, Sydney do have some damage leaving this one in terms of a one-game suspension. This one to James Rowbottom for a bump on Zach Merritt. And any loss is a big one for the Swans with the task they're up against this coming round. 
playing Carlton at Marvel Stadium. That should be a heck of a round opener. The other Saturday night game was one that I thought a couple weeks ago looked really appealing. Lost a bit of its luster with how Adelaide played the last couple rounds. And I think this game kind of ended up representing the Crows season in a microcosm as they started decently well, played a really nice second quarter, and then got absolutely blitzed after that, falling to Brisbane by 36 at the Adelaide Oval, 9-12-66 to 16-6-102. I would say it would have been much more accurate had the Crows jumped out in the first quarter, but fair enough. It was competitive game throughout the first half, and that was because this was a game predicated on goal-scoring runs. After Taylor Walker opened the scoring, Brisbane scored the next four goals. Two of those were from Charlie Cameron returning once again to the Adelaide Oval, and Eric Hipwood had an immediate impact there. He does not look right with his short hair, but his on-field chemistry with Charlie is very clear. He had a couple really nice taps to him that led to goals. One of them was there. One of them was a bit later on. After that four-goal run from the Lions, the Crows got six of the next seven between the late first and the late second quarter, with Shane McAdam and Ned McHenry each getting two goals. Did this game have a Mick record? Because there were five Micks playing. Brisbane had Lincoln McCarthy, Hugh McCluggage, and Oscar McInerney to go along with McAdam and McHenry for Adelaide. Brisbane got the last two goals of the first half and ended up being only down by three heading into the rooms. Once they came back out, it was clear that Adelaide did not adjust properly, but more that Brisbane had grown into the contest and were just outclassing him from there. The three pretty quick goals to start the third, with Zach Bailey getting his third, then Lockie Neal taking advantage of a 50 that he helped point out, and Jared Lyons creating an opportunity for another Jared with a different vowel, Jared Barry. Brisbane ended up with an eight-goal run, getting the first six of the second half. And after that run was ended, the Lions also got three in the first seven and a half minutes off the clock in the fourth quarter before Jimmy Rowe made the score a little more respectable, though I think six goals is pretty accurate for this one. When you look at some of the entry numbers and just the pure number of scoring shots, because Brisbane definitely made Adelaide's life tougher. That was the primary reason in my book that Adelaide only kicked 9-12, but at the same time, a good deal of that pain was still self-inflicted. You mentioned the... Cameron and Hipwood chemistry, and I think it's always really fun when you have a taller forward and a shorter forward working together, and those two are so fun to watch playing off each other. I think we now have a very viable explanation for why Charlie Cameron had gotten off to a bit of a slow start this year. He's been playing better lately and has really taken his game to another level with Hipwood back out there. Charlie with four goals won on just eight touches, and he could have had a fifth had he really wanted it, but he unselfishly let a really nice kick from the boundary from Dane Zorko roll through. And I hope he keeps the long sleeves because that looked great on him. Hipwood only had 11 touches, but in that, he had four marks and four goal assists. Other notable stats for the Lions. Another big game for Lockie Neal with 36 disposals, seven marks, and seven clearances. Daniel Rich, 26 disposals and 523 meters gained. Almost identical for Zorko. He had 26 and 518. Zach Bailey with big three-goal performance, all in key situations. He finished with 19 disposals. Harris Andrews and Marcus Adams, eight marks apiece. 
For Adelaide, no surprise that Ben Keyes, Rory Laird, and Jordan Dawson were big factors there. Keyes with 27 disposals and 10 clearances. Laird, 33 disposals, 10 tackles, and 9 clearances. Dawson with 24 touches and 695 meters gained. Also not surprising that Tom Dude had 7 marks and 16 intercept possessions. Was more surprising to see that Sam Barry had 13 tackles among all that. But what was disappointing on the staff front for Adelaide is that despite the success of Keyes and Laird, Brisbane actually won the clearances by 3. Keyes and Laird combined for 19 clearances, but no other Crow had more than four. They really do need a third player who's able to do that, and they certainly didn't here. Meanwhile, Big O and Darcy Ford dominated the hitouts plus 25. I'm really glad Jordan Dawson got that after the siren goal because it's gotten us to notice him a lot more, and he's really come into his own with his new club. And as much as the Crows have struggled the last couple of weeks, he's been a bright spot. I would like to see Adelaide play a good game in the next few weeks, ideally against someone other than Geelong, who they go to visit in round 11, because otherwise they're just going to be on the same sort of trajectory they showed last year, where they got off to a really nice start and then sputtered and regressed. And I'd like to see them just establish a better big picture trend, even if they don't win too many more games the rest of the year, splash in a couple of nice performances from here on out. Meanwhile, for the Lions, this just seems like same old, same old, especially with Hipwood back. They've got almost all their pieces back in place. They are without Daniel McStay. We could have actually had six mix in this game, which is ridiculous. But I don't think anybody really noticed that he was out. And I think the case is pretty clear between this game, as well as the next one we're going to talk about, that Brisbane are the second best team in the competition. That next game was definitely the biggest stunner of the round in mostly rainy conditions, but with occasional splashes of sunshine as well. Gold Coast pulled off one of the biggest stunners of the season for their second win in a row, and a second major upset in a row at that after winning at the SCG. This time they take down the Dockers, handing Fremantle just their second loss of the season, 10-9-69. Nice! to 4-9-33. We said at the end of the last episode that one game or another is probably going to make us look like idiots, and here we are. Looking at this game in retrospect, I really feel like the first quarter was maybe a feeling out or adjusting period for the Suns. They started off slow. They were kicking into situations where they were outnumbered, but they realized that their best path was on the ground, and that's the case for them and not just in this contest, and not just in the rainy conditions, but throughout the season. Their midfielders have plenty of kicky ability, but they also have the speed and the handball deafness to operate very, very well on the ground. Meanwhile, Fremantle got way more opportunities, but they just couldn't take advantage of them. Maybe the most mind-blowing team stat from a game so far this season. Fremantle won inside 50s 65-36. to 36. And it wasn't just because they got a bunch late. They were getting them throughout the game, though they did pad that number a bit in the fourth quarter. But Gold Coast operated at 55.6% efficiency to Fremantle's 32.3. So the Dockers ended up making something out of just one more of their inside 50s than the Suns did. I'm struggling to piece together where exactly it was for Fremantle that it went wrong. I don't think that the conditions explain absolutely everything for them but they just weren't converting on 
their inside 50s at all. They've got the forward ability. Rory Lobb was back. Michael Frederick was back. But maybe it's in coming back that they were having an issue because those players were returning from COVID protocols. There's been talk throughout this season, throughout the past couple, on the immediate impact that COVID has had on players. It can certainly manifest long-term, but in the short term, it definitely does hamper your breathing, it hampers your stamina, and I'm wondering what level of an impact that had. However, I really don't think that's the whole story here. Plus, let's remember, even if you're not seriously sick, which a lot of these cases are pretty minor, it's just when you're isolating... It's not a sport you can practice in a confined space. Whereas, for example, baseball, there are pitchers who just throw a ball off a mattress or something while they're cooped up inside. There really isn't an equivalent of that for football. Really, unless you're living with someone else who's positive and you're trying to train together still. But at that point, you're probably just trying to save your energy. As much as that inefficiency was a downer for Fremantle, I was just lauding praise on Gold Coast throughout this week in my conversations with you, Ethan, and throughout these notes as well. They were making opportunities count. They were playing the right way. They were making opportunities count. Weirdly, this was a week where their clearance work far outdid their hitouts. Fremantle won the hitouts by 13, 46 to 33, but Gold Coast dominated clearances 37 to 22 on stoppages and 46 to 30 overall. Tuke Miller with 10 clearances, Matt Rowell with nine. That is probably where Rowell operates the very best. And he wasn't confined to a tagging role or the wings. He was really integrated into their midfield and their general ball movement this time. And that paid huge dividends. Six clearances from David Swallow, five from Noah Anderson, four from Brandon Ellis. Everyone that needed to work well there did. But the one player that probably impressed me the most in this game was Mavi Orchul. He was awesome. Four goals, two behinds with just 10 disposals, 261 meters gained, but he wasn't just cherry picking or anything. He was all over the ground. It was a really entertaining game to watch from him. And it's surprising considering how much everyone has positive things to say about Richmond's structure and how people have kind of ripped the Suns for their coaching over the years, how he's really found a home at Gold Coast and put himself in a spot to succeed. He's just a fun player to watch when he's on, and he played very well in this one. He was the only player, actually, with more than two goals, and the only other player that had two himself was the other big key forward for Gold Coast and Levi Caspel, who kicked two goals one from just seven touches. The tall forwards are really coming to play for the Suns, and that is without... Ben King. Another big game stat-wise for Tuke Miller, you mentioned the 10 clearances. He had 34 disposals, 8 tackles, and gained 587 meters. Noah Anderson, a goal, 26 disposals, gained 509. Sean Levins gained 501 and finished with 10 marks. But I think the guy who made a name for himself the most, as in I hadn't thought about him much before and then he played really well in this game, was Connor Butterick, who finished with 8 marks really added a much-needed dimension to the Gold Coast defense. Yes, Fremantle were sloppy, but Gold Coast defense was playing quite well, considering they held the Dockers goalless for 54 minutes of clock time from midway through the first quarter until midway through the fourth when Sean Darcy finally got one. This after the Suns had taken their largest lead of the day, leading by as much as 50 before the Dockers ended up getting the final 14 points of the day. One of the really compelling things when you look at the stats for this game 
because the Dockers had the ball so much, they ended up putting up a lot of good individual stat numbers possession-wise, though with such little scoring. Not much in the scoring department, obviously. Griffin Logue, 29 disposals and 11 marks. Will Brody in his return to Gold Coast, 27 disposals and 8 tackles. Was disappointing that we didn't really hear much booing on that front. You kind of expect that for players coming back. It was a small crowd, I think, under 9,000, and the conditions are definitely to blame for that. But it seemed like some fan engagement was lacking a bit as well. I'm not one to really harp on the Gold Coast fans. Props to those who stuck it out despite the wet conditions, that, despite the wet conditions, not just in Carrara, but across Queensland. Continuing with Fremantle stats, Caleb Sarong, 26 disposals and 14 tackles. James Aish, 24 disposals, 8 marks and 5 tackles. Lake Akers gained 545 meters to go with his 22 disposals, 8 tackles and 7 marks. Considering the possessions the Fremantle are able to get, even if they have a stinker of a game like this, and I think they'll end up making this game look like an aberration in the long run, even when they do, they'll still rack up a bunch of ranking points individually, so for all you fantasy people, keep that in mind. Meanwhile, while we expect this to be a one-off bad performance for Fremantle, now I'm going to be paying even more attention to the Suns this coming round. There's a huge chance for this to be a real momentum builder for Gold Coast. They play their best against top teams, and they've outdone two in a row. Now they're going to the Central Highlands to play the Bulldogs, and if they can make a Victoria trip count, they may really have something. They'd be 5-5 five and five at that point, and you'd really have to put them into consideration in that very crowded middle third. Four and six isn't a death sentence, but we've seen that a losing record going into the bye is a frequent killer. However, they also do have a couple not ridiculous matchups following that in Darwin. This game once again raises questions about the Suns, such as where was this when they were getting clapped by teams like GWS? The other thing I want to ask, I know he's not a great kick, but considering his ability to take marks, Maybe Jared Witts is underused outside of the center circle. I think maybe you could use him in an Asava Radagalea type role where you don't want him making too many kicks, but you want to have his size and his physicality and his ability to create marks and wall off other opponents and create space. I think there's a lot that can be done with him. The second game on Sunday was GWS hosting Carlton. Final game of Leon Cameron's coaching career. The Giants got off to a terrible start, so maybe Leon Cameron decided to give his worst pregame speech of his career before his final game. Probably no correlation, but we can pretend. They managed to come all the way back, tie the game up going into halftime, but never pulled ahead for even a moment. Carlton pulled away in the fourth, ended up winning this game by 30. Giants 11-9-75, Blues 15-15-105. And the Blues managed that despite Harry Mackay being sidelined for six weeks, if not longer, with a knee injury. That meant the onus fell more on Charlie Kernow and Corey Durden. And while nobody kicked more than two goals in this one, Durden was the deserving Rising Star nominee for this round, kicking two goals, one on 19 touches. This game really showed me that Carlton have so much more forward depth. People talk so much about Harry Mackay. Charlie Kernow stole the show in the win over the Crows in round eight, but this time it was the Durden show. 
considering that Kernow was relatively quiet in comparison to last week and that Makai was obviously unavailable, it shows you just how many good forwards this Carlton team has. I do want to say, while at first we were both taken aback by Leon Cameron stepping down, seems like he's on good terms with everyone at the club. People seem to really enjoy him as a person. He comes off, as much as you can tell, watching games from halfway around the world, like a really nice guy. And I would have loved for him to be able to go off with a win. Also would have loved for the Giants to win this one because Big Big Sound is a great song and We Are the Navy Blues is one of the weaker fight songs. But that's beside the point. The fact is GWS got off to a terrible start, conceding the first 26 points before they could get anything going. Outside of Harry Perryman and Isaac Cumming, their defense struggled largely. It was another weak game for Connor Iden. Not a lot out of Lockie Whitfield. Not a lot out of Lockie Ash. And things have just been incomplete there. They have pieces. They haven't been able to line them all up together. Maybe with new coaching, that'll change. One thing I do want to mention is that Gillen McLaughlin has said that James Hurd will not be barred from any coaching opportunities, and it looks like he is going to be joining the staff at GWS right now with Mark McVeigh heading things in the interim. Maybe a sign of where the AFL sees the blame for the whole supplement saga at Essendon falling. Obviously, that was when Hurd was coached there. Not sure really how much to read it, other than the fact that Stephen Dank remains an absolute piece of shit. GWS trailed this game by just five late in the third quarter after Jacob Wietering got a bullshit arms out 50, but the Giants from there got very undisciplined, allowed a lot of free kicks, and with Sam Doherty atoning for an earlier mistake by scoring from 57 meters out, that all but put the game away. Combine that with Harry Himmelberg missing on a snap shortly after. Sam Doherty is one of the players I want to focus on in this game because I noticed Doherty earlier in the game for a mistake. He had a bad turnover that let Toby Green get a goal. That was the first time all year I've noticed a negative play from Sam Doherty. He's been an inspirational story for obvious reasons, but he's also just a really fundamentally solid defender. And that we're in round nine and I finally noticed him making a negative play speaks volumes to how good he's been. He finished this game with 28 disposals and 10 marks, plus that goal from 57. Sam Walsh, two goals, 31 disposals. Matthew Kennedy, another 27 disposals and 8 marks. Lockie O'Brien, 22 disposals, 8 marks, 672 meters gained. And Nick Newman, 19 disposals and 10 marks. Perhaps the best news coming out of this game for the Blues, though, was that it turns out Zach Williams did not rupture another Achilles. He simply suffered a high-grade calf strain, which will take him out of action for something like 10 to 12 weeks, but it's a whole lot better than the alternative. He looked so devastated when he went down, and I'm really glad his injury isn't quite as bad as it appeared from the outset. I was really thinking that had he torn his other Achilles after the injury of the first one, still lingering that it could be a career-ending issue. This time, it only looks like he'll be out for most of the duration of the home and away, but could definitely factor into this side for finals. And it is so refreshing to talk about finals for this team. Couple quick stats for GWS. Josh Kelly finished with a game-high 36 disposals as well as seven tackles. Harry Perryman, one of the few defenders who really delivered for GWS. 
24 disposals, 8 marks, 689 meters gained. Isaac Cumming, 22 disposals and 696 meters gained. Sam Taylor, similar to Sam DeConing, kind of a mixed bag of a performance where he racked up some good numbers but had some moments where he got beat. He finished with 11 intercepts. He's had to be the guy in the back with Iden going a whole lot of different places. And when he's been in the back, he's been more of a halfback guy. Taylor has definitely shown it in some ways with Phil Davis out, but there's no one player who can do anything like that all alone. And Davis is a superior player, so his absence has more than hurt. In terms of team stats, the Giants nearly tripled the Blues on hitouts, 44 to 15, but the Blues were plus eight on clearances and plus 12 from stoppages. And it's more evidence that they've been able to plan really well for how they're going to attack center and stoppage contests with Mark Pittanet out. So well done once again, Michael Voss. I think over the last couple of weeks, the way the Blues have played has reflected very positively on Voss, where it turns out there is more substance to his coaching, even in year one, than just play fast because we have good forwards. Hooray, we've arrived at the final game of the round. Oh God, we've arrived at the final game of the round. West Coast Eagles 5-8-38, defeated by Melbourne 16-16-112. It looks bad, it was bad, but there wasn't really a finishing blow on this game. Even with Melbourne jumping out to a 41-point first quarter, they didn't really put their stamp on it until the seven-goal final quarter. And that was despite Josh Kennedy being out for the Eagles, and with another fast start for them getting the first goal, Tim Kelly active early on again, and then everything just started to fade away so quickly. I was wondering just how long they'd be able to stick around, and when Liam Duggan spoiled his own man in Jeremy McGovern and Christian Petraka had one of his two goals, it was clear that they weren't going to end up putting up much of a fight because they were going to supply enough self-inflicted wounds from their inexperience and just lack of cohesion from it being a pretty raw group. And only one player having played all nine games for them, that being Patrick Nage, who for some reason was reduced to the sub role this week and came on when Liam Ryan got hurt. Meanwhile, Melbourne have had some injuries and a week with protocols, but they looked as well-oiled as they've been throughout these past couple years. I also liked how early on they did a good job of neutralizing the Eagles' interceptors because Max Gaughan went up in contests with them at times. And few teams have someone of that stature that can fight the interceptors, but I'd like to see more teams trying to confront Shannon Hearn, even though he wasn't playing this one, Tom Barras, Jeremy McGovern, with some of their tall forwards. I'll admit, I watched less of this game than almost any other game so far this season. And I do not blame you. You know, I saw what the score was while I was watching GWS Carlton. And considering that the Demons led by 35 after a quarter and already had more points in a quarter than the Eagles scored all game, I think you can understand why. But it seemed like at least the Eagles played with some level of heart and put up something resembling a fight, regardless of what the scoreboard showed. And that's at least a big positive, considering how bad things have looked at times from an effort standpoint for them. I did notice their fight, especially in the first couple quarters, but fight can only get you so far without the skill and the team chemistry. And Melbourne were opening up West Coast at pretty much every opportunity, and that reflects in 
all sorts of numbers. Clayton Oliver with another 29 disposals. Christian Petraka only kicked 2-4, but 28 disposals, 8 tackles and 6 marks. James Jordan, 27 disposals, 6 marks and 612 meters gained. Jack Viney, 27 disposals and 12 tackles. Angus Brayshaw, 24 disposals, 8 marks, 496 meters gained. Tom McDonald, 4 goals in the behind. Bailey Fritch and Kazi Pickett, 3 goals apiece. And both Stephen May and Jake Bowie finishing with 9 intercepts apiece. Was worried about Bowie after he went down when Liam Ryan got his head, but thankfully Bowie was able to finish the game. We'll talk more about where Liam Ryan factors into things in a little bit. Quick numbers for the Eagles. Tim Kelly with 32 disposals. He gained 507 meters. Although after the first quarter, his numbers seemed to be much more quantity than anything else. Hi, Darcy Parrish. Connor West, 29 disposals and 7 tackles. Alex Witherden, 24 disposals and 12 marks. Tom Barras, Harry Edwards, Josh Rotham, all with 10 marks and Jeremy McGovern with 10 intercepts. Staggering team stat of note, Melbourne was able to feast without Nick Natanui in the center circle. Hitouts favored the Demons 47-19, and they won clearances 37-27. Honestly surprised that the clearances were within just 10 with Melbourne's prowess there. We have seen at times that the Eagles have been able to adjust with their lack of true rucks at the moment, and I think that's slightly reflective in those stats, but one way or another, Melbourne had dominating quarters to bookend this game, and we should have expected it, especially with how they tend to finish games. I'm surprised that they got off to such a good start, though, thinking maybe you come into a game like this kind of soft mentally, They've been a team that hasn't started a lot of games that well. They've usually been such a good second-half team, and yet they came out swinging. They clearly had the right frame of mind going in, probably realized, hey, if we let a team hang around and they start to believe, let's step on them early and make sure that doesn't happen. And let's just and let's just get percentage early and often, and bravo to them for doing just that and starting 9-0 now for the second year in a row. Unlike last year, they should really make it to 10-0. It would be quite the story if they lose this coming week to North Melbourne. Even though I don't believe they've ever beaten North at Marvel Stadium, we'll definitely mention that as one of the few things that might be going for the Kangaroos when we have our round 10 preview in a couple days' time. Before we wrap up with this game and this episode, though, I want to take some time to discuss the discipline that came from the MRO for this match. Two incidents, one for each team. We mentioned Liam Ryan. He had that bump on Jake Bowie in the third quarter. Ryan was suspended for a single game for that. Meanwhile, in the fourth quarter, Cade Chandler had a tackle on Luke Foley that knocked out Foley for a bit. His arms were pinned and his head hit the deck. Foley was able to get back up and walk out under his own power. Great sign there. But Chandler still got two weeks. And to me, this is another example of the AFL's Hammurabi-like approach, which we criticized when Patty Ryder got his suspension and which we're seeing rear its ugly head once again here. Liam Ryan's play was unnecessary. That kind of bump off the ball is a play that shouldn't be in football. Players should know better. They're able to keep players off the ball in cleaner ways. But because Ryan's play didn't result in an injury, he only got one game. Meanwhile, Chandler's was a tackle that started okay, but it became an issue in the process of it being made when his hands slipped to pin Foley's arms. 
And wouldn't you know it, the greater injury is punished over the worse intent. And both plays involve head contact, so that can't explain the difference in the severity of the suspension. It's purely looking like an eye-for-an-eye situation, and that's just not punishing the right thing. Punishing the intent helps set a standard where the players know what they need to avoid. Punishing the outcome doesn't do that. It's just inefficient, and a lot of times, the outcome is much less in the offending player's control, whereas the intent is always something that the offending player can control. Not just can control, it's something they do control. All right, we've just about wrapped up this round. It's time to talk about Mark of the Week and Goal of the Week. First off, your three nominees for Mark of the Week. Jack Billings chasing a ball down for an over-the-shoulder catch that was uncontested, though Mark O'Connor was pretty close by. You had Tom DeConing kicking off Nick Haynes' back and flying to make a catch. And you had Ivan Soldo leaping sandwiched between Jacob Kaczynski and Sam Frost. Who's your winner here? I think it's pretty clear that it's Tom DeConing. It's the only play that really involved that sort of using the other player that tends to really get the crowd and the fans going in. Plays like that can definitely be momentum plays too. I believe it was in this case. I guess Billings' grab might be contested in name in some respects. I don't know exactly where it falls on the stats, but I'm really surprised that there wasn't another more sound nominee for that, even though the AFL and Australian fans do seem to like those over-the-shoulder grabs. Maybe that's another way that our Americanness is showing because we're very used to those sorts of grabs in American football. I agree that DeConing is pretty clearly the winner here. For goal of the week, there's another clear winner for us. But considering how that went last time we thought this player had won it, we might be completely wrong here. Let's go with the later game first, because two of them were from the same earlier game. All three of these actually occurred in Saturday action. The last one was Dane Zorko receiving the handball from Jared Berry and kicking from an improbable angle near the right boundary and having it bounce through. I mentioned earlier that Charlie Cameron let that one bounce through unselfishly. Then there were two from Hawthorne and Richmond. You had Dustin Martin picking up a ball from the scrap on the ground, who didn't take any time to set up and scored with a slight outside kick from a tight angle amidst the crowd. But this has to be Toby Dancuris this week. I don't know how it wasn't last time. This one should be in the conversation on Brownlow night. Ethan talked about it earlier with Nancurvis grabbing the ball up right out of the contest. Max Lynch spun him around by the bottom of his jumper. And while that's happening, Nancurvis kicks it about as well as you could. Not just through the posts, but as high as he kicked it as well. This is the clear winner. I still think his goal against GWS was better. But you could, at the end of the year, when you're looking at the top few, you could have multiple entries from Nancurvis. I think he's definitely the most exciting ruck to watch on other spots on the ground. Even more than Max Gaughan. Nothing tops Nick Navanui within the center circle, and Max Gaughan's ability to pop up on every possible part of the field is a really amazing thing. But from the standpoint of sheer wow factor plays, Toby Nancurvis wins, at least so far this season, and he deserves to be recognized. That just about does it for us. Once again, you know where to find us on Twitter at Americans Footy. You can find Brian the Footy Cat on Instagram at Cat Named Brian. You can find me at BenjaminHK01 on Twitter. You can find Ethan and all of his baseball and high school sports news and occasional extra footy thoughts as well 
at Castle Media. We'll be coming to you in just a day or two with our preview of the first part of the Sir Doug Nichols round. Just a couple of programming heads ups before we go. We're going to be doing a couple of little extra features moving ahead, things like ranking the Doug Nichols jerseys. Benjamin, the music guy in this operation, is going to rank all of the fight songs. We're going to have some time now that we're back together in person to do some special mini episodes when teams are announced for a round, if there are enough big surprises or newsworthy items. And with the bye weeks coming up, expect three shorter episodes in those weeks instead of the two longer ones as we'll be breaking down just six games instead of nine. And that extra third episode will be midseason progress reports for the six inactive teams each round. So look forward to that because we certainly are and we hope you'll tune in again next time. Thanks a lot.